know, whenever something new comes into the scene, it's going to be experienced as a disruptor, it's going to be experienced as a threat, and people are going to have to adjust to make room for that. And that's exactly what happened with us. From the recording studios of Reconstructing Judaism, this is Trending Jewish with Rachel Burgess and Brian Schwartzman. This is going to be really hard to jump into because we've been here for for 10 minutes um, talking about everything from the Babylonian gods aspect of Ghostbusters to whether Dragon Bruce Lee's story was true. And we sort of got sidetracked into zombies, but um, we're going to have to bring it back because we've got we've got listeners now and we're, we're here to talk about evolving Jewish communities and 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 new expressions of uh, of of congregations and non congregations and what congregations can learn from experimental organizations. So how do we how do we bring it back? Um, I I think the only I think the only way we're gonna do it is just to kind of dive right in because I don't think you can go from like the Babylonian gods of. Ghostbusters and zombies and dragons into Jewish synagogues, but um, <laughs> I should have been recording all that. <laughs> Was that the voice of Sam? Yeah. Sam Sam did say that. Um, That's our producer, Sam Walks. He said that we would keep these fond thoughts in our memories <laughs> to be drawn upon in dark times. <laughs> And then that got us on a on a whole tangent of a of a hidden deleted scene from from the first uh, Bruce Lee Look feature. At that. We did get it back. We did. It did, it came back. So, you know, it's really interesting. I I think one of the things that I hear a lot when I'm out in the world, I'm not sure how much you hear about this, but there's this big worry about people like especially after the 2013 uh, Pew report that came out about um American Jews and how they interact with Judaism. And it's still, you know, here we are five years later and we're still talking about it because we're finding that more and more people don't want to be affiliated with a traditional synagogue. And a lot of synagogues have, and a lot of, you know, movements, ours included, have been trying to figure out, okay, well, what is, you know, what does the Jewish community of today look like now? And are we equipped to handle that or do we need to change our models? And, um, you know, why, like, what is it about the traditional synagogue that isn't quite striking people the same way it used to so you know even not that long ago oh it's been a while since i looked at the uh looked at the pew i mean i know on on the other hand it showed a a, a tremendous uh majority of 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 respondents uh expressed pride in being jewish and, and you know maybe some interest in connecting it also showed uh a very you know way you know an overwhelming majority of 25 to 40 year olds who were getting married are marrying or are entering intermarriages, which, which brings us a little bit to our topic because some of what Judaism your way and organization in, in, in Denver does and, and some of its beginnings was really rooted in serving intermarried families that at least were perceived not being served elsewhere. Um, so 
And this program also evolved into something much bigger where it really is. So they started one of the people, well, the person that we're talking to is Rabbi Brian Field. And one of the things that he'll go into is basically how he just kind of did this listening process where he actually sat down and talked with people to find out. What does Judaism mean to you? What does what do you need from a Jewish community? And they shaped their entire community based on, you know, how do you want to interact with Judaism, which is very different from a lot of synagogue models that we're familiar with. I think we're going to we're going to leave it to Rabbi Field to really explain what Judaism your way is and what it does. You know, I think an open question which I I, I think we raise in this in this interview is is to what extent can congregations have a learn from from what Judaism your way is doing and and to what extent is it is it really its own its own entity um so we are thrilled to have rabbi brian field jo- join us on the on the program rabbi brian field is the uh, founding rabbi of Judaism your way in denver colorado rabbi field graduated from the reconstructionist rabbinical college in 1994 before moving to denver in 2004 he served congregations in chatham new jersey and madison wisconsin brian also worked as a hospital chaplain in milwaukee wisconsin And he declares his vision of Judaism as a maximally inclusive Judaism that plays a robust role in the healing of the planet and the liberation of all human beings. So with that, welcome, Rabbi Brian Field. It's such a pleasure to have you and to get a chance to talk to you about your really ground-shaking work. Happy to be part of the conversation. Awesome. Great. So uh, welcome, Welcome, Rabbi uh, Brian Field. This is uh, this is a pleasure to have you on your uh, on on our show. How are things in Denver today? Things are beautiful. A couple of days ago, we had a lot of snow and it was cold, and now it's 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 beautiful and sunny, and it's supposed to get up to seventy. So, and our- I'm realizing as I'm asking you this that this will probably be eight weeks before this airs. And, and- okay, so we can start again. How are things in Denver? <laughs> so, things are great in Denver. Well, sometimes we let bloopers go on uh, on, on purpose, but generally we. Uh- okay. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess um, this is it. So, but. We're really interested in, in hearing about Judaism your way. It's a major force in, in Denver, but I think, you know, around the country are, and the world, our, our, our listeners might not be as familiar. So I think to get this going and to sink our teeth into it, I was wondering if you could really lay out for us kind of, I guess, just start telling us what it is and how it's, it's unique in the, in the Denver ecosystem. So Judaism your way is not a congregation, though we do from time to time invite people to congregate together. And I'll be happy to say more about the ways in which we do that. We're a nonprofit um, dedicated to Jewish outreach. And we've been around since 2003. And basically we're formed as a response to a 1997 Denver area Jewish demographic study, which showed that maybe 30 some odd percent of Jews were affiliated with congregations or other Jewish organizations, and that over 50% of Jews were in intermarriages. And this is similar to demographic studies throughout the country. And the concern was like how to respond. So 
um, an interfaith couple who have been, who had long been, you know, philanthropists in the local Jewish community, decided that a response would be to hire a rabbi who would serve the Jewish community and be open to officiating at interfaith weddings. And they um, approached the, uh, the Jewish Federation and said that they would sponsor, um, they would fund such a position and the Federation um, declined. And they also approached the Jewish Community Center and got a similar response. It was too controversial. It would offend more of the traditional funders. So um, because they had the means, they decided to um, fund an independent organization, which initially was called Kol Halev, um, Hebrew for Voice of the Heart, and had a few trials and errors. And by the year 2004, actually advertised for a full-time rabbi in many places, including in the Reconstructionist Movement's placement bulletin, and that's where I heard about it. And so I, I, I followed up, and by August of 2004, I was moving to Denver. So we've been here ever since, figuring out how to create and how to, um, how to build an organization dedicated to outreach, dedicated to reaching and serving either Jews and their loved ones who are not affiliated, not connected to the organized Jewish community, or Jews who are, but who want something, for example, such as an interfaith wedding, that most of the organized Jewish community isn't able or willing or prepared to, to offer. I'm just wondering, um, can you, can you yes. take us back to that moment, that time in your life, in your rabbinate, why, why this really upstart idea would have, would have appealed to you, would have had you pick up and uh, move your, your family? I believe you were living in, in Ohio, and is that I was actually living in Madison, Wisconsin at okay. the time, and at the time I was working as as a hospital chaplain both in Madison and in Milwaukee. Prior to that, I had served the Reconstructionist um, congregation in Madison, Sharei Shemayim, as their first resident rabbi between the years um, 1996 and 2002. So at the time that I heard about this opportunity, I was actually working as a chaplain, as I said, both in Madison and Milwaukee. And one of the really interesting things about being a chaplain is that you're working as a rabbi, but you're providing spiritual care to people of all faith traditions. And that was really interesting to me, you know, learning how to serve people from whatever, you know, spiritual or faith perspective they were coming from and doing it within my own integrity as a rabbi, but putting their needs kind of front and center. And I realized like in the process of doing that, that, that was actually interesting and kind of a source of a lot of creativity for me. At the same time, in my work as the, um, as the rabbi for Sharei Shemaim in Madison, a lot of the congregants were people who had challenged relationships with institutional Judaism. And a lot of, a lot of the congregants were intermarried. A lot of them were gay and intermarried. And their, their request was, or their demand of Judaism was that Judaism be more responsive to them in, in the integrity of who they were. And as I was working with them, working with people who kind of had one foot in and one foot out of institutional Judaism, I discovered that that's where I really came alive personally in my rabbinate. That was that kind of creative work, solving those kinds of challenges was very stimulating for me. And so when the opportunity to do this full time um, you know, arose, I, I said, I, I need to find out more about this. And that was, uh, 14 years ago. Packed up your bags and went from one snowy winter to another? You know, in Madison, the winters um, kind of 
once once they land on you, they kind of stick. Um, in Denver, they come and go. Oh, so it's just a whole bunch of you don't you just didn't know what to expect. No, in the weather, yeah. in in your in your career, in this community, it's just nothing but surprise and. <laughs> Well, that, that's a large, that's a big part of, of, of at least what, what's kind of evolved for me in my work and in the organization itself is kind of a sense, and I know this is something a lot of people are saying in terms of, you know, in terms of spiritual practice, but embracing the, the not knowing. And so part of our approach um, at Judaism Your Way is like when somebody comes in to talk with us, we don't know. We don't know where they're coming from. We actually don't know what their way is. And so part of the message that we were trying to send by um, with, with the name that we gave to our organization was that people would get the sense that we were actually interested and we were actually going to begin with who they were, where they were coming from, and then the potential of every conversation, of every meeting was that we the people who worked for Judaism Your Way were going to use whatever Jewish tools we knew to, to support them on whatever their way was. And so every conversation begins with that sense of not knowing and that sense of openness, that, that curiosity, and, and, and the question, how can we be helpful? So somebody comes in and says, I'm really interested in nature and spirituality and the environment. What uh, just as an example, what would you what would you do with them? Like, I guess, what would <laughs> what you do, do with, with them? <laughs> but how would you how would you help direct them on their journey? There we go. Well, first of all, okay. So I, I I'd ask them to tell me more about their connection to nature and where they found you know where nature has been, what what their spiritual experiences with nature have been, and hearing their stories. Then I'd find out, you know, so what brought you here? And I would learn more about like their connection to Judaism. And so we would take, I, we'd take those two pieces and then um, take the next step. And I'd be waiting and watching them to see if something clicked for them or if, you know, a more aliveness, some more of a spark came into their eyes. And then I'd know that we were uh, like taking a step in the right direction. And if not, we'd, we'd keep it open. But one of the things that when people come in is I just basically say, so what would you like to walk out of here with? So we're going to spend maybe a half an hour, an hour together. What would you like to walk out with? And then when it's time for them to leave, just ask them, you know, if they can articulate what they actually experienced. And um, if they're walking away with any, any answers or any more questions or if they have a thought about a next step. The challenge, I think, for people in any kind of position of expertise, and I would so I would include rabbis in that position, is that we come with a lot of answers in our quiver. And it's very easy for us to think that we know. And so the idea of like, so we set up the name of our organization, Judaism Your Way, as kind of a reminder, as kind of a check on that kind of impulse or inclination to hold on to, um, to, to claim that place of knowing and to balance that with a sense of not knowing, a sense of curiosity and openness and willingness to be surprised and to learn something new. So I'm curious about what your role is like, because you don't have this traditional, what we think of as um, the traditional rabbi who, you know, goes to 
you know, lead, like leads the same services, do, does the same thing every Shabbat. And I'm also trying to understand what it means to be like with Judaism your way, which first of all, I love the name because it gives that air that it already sets an environment saying, OK, you can come here and you're not going to be judged for being whatever place you're in in your Jewish journey. But what does what does this organization what do you what does this actually look like what does your role look like in this so we began with the mission of working with individuals couples or families who in one form or another kind of have one foot in one foot out of um, or of organized judaism in one form or another and so the initial um, picture was counseling was teaching was helping people with life events, particularly people like interfaith couples or families for whom, you know, the standard Jewish ritual might not meet all of their needs. So that was the original picture. But then came the, uh, you know, quickly arose notion, well, how do we get the word out? And how do we let people know that we're actually, that there's actually a Judaism behind the work that we're doing? And so, one of the first things that we did was we began offering High Holy Day services, free open High Holy Day services. Our first year, we did it in a conference room at the University of Denver. Maybe about 20 people came. During that first year, we said, you know, we want to hold High Holy Day services in an unusual place. And so we found out about a park gardens in a suburb of Denver that had kind of large tents in which they, you know, in which they held um, concerts and, and, and like weddings and things like that. So we decided to rent that and host High Holy Days. And the next year we got about 120 people. And over the next several years, the, the numbers grew until we outgrew that place. And six years ago, we moved to the Denver Botanic Gardens wow. where we hold High Holy Day services first you know, they have a, a tent that seats a thousand people. And after a couple of years, we filled that. And so by this time, we'd hired a second rabbi. And so now we are conducting services in two locations, one indoors and one outdoors at the Denver Botanic Gardens. And, and a lot of people come. We, 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 we fill both venues. And we also offer, um, you know, services for, you know, for families with very young children. And the first time we did this, you know, back in the, the suburban gardens, we had about 40 or 50 people. This past year, um, there were 700 people at our children's service. So what we're doing with the High Holy Day services is um, clearly we're not just reaching people who are intermarried or people who are not affiliated. At the basis, um, kind of behind those two services is a, is a vision of Judaism, what we like to call a maximally inclusive Judaism that a lot of people are responding to. And so when you, when you kind of stand when the ground upon which you're standing is a commitment to a maximally inclusive Judaism, you express that in terms of, you know, the high holy day services that we offer in the gardens or the community Passover Seder that we offer or the occasional Shabbat services that we are now offering or some of the other holiday events that we offer. And everything is informed by, by the challenge to, um, offer something on a, on a group level that will be as inclusive as possible. So I, I can talk more about how we do that. But over, over the years, we gradually began to realize that we actually had a Torah to teach. And we call that the Torah of inclusion. 
And so what is the commanding voice of the Torah of inclusion? What are the stories in Torah that speak to that voice? And what is the Midrash? What are the, what are the interpretations of the Torah that can support Judaism to boldly um, become more and more open? So I kind of told you a long story in response to your question as to like, what do I do and what does it actually look like? What we actually do at Judaism Your Way is a combination of our initial mission, which is to work with people one-on-one, work with an individual, work with a family, work with a couple. We teach classes, we work with groups. We're the only organization in Denver that offers a series of, of, of classes for interfaith couples to kind of figure stuff out together. And at the same time, we're also doing high holiday services and other kinds of holiday events in which anyone can come. And it's both a way for people to experience, you know, what, you know, at least our version of a maximally inclusive Judaism might look like, at least as best as we can imagine and articulate it at this stage of of our development. But also it's an opportunity for people to check us out and see if we might be a gateway into Judaism that might serve them. So you're not, this is, this is a lot for me to wrap my head around and uh-huh. I've been following this stuff. I, um, so you're not a congregation, but in some ways you're probably bigger than a, than a, a lot of congregations yes. in, in a, almost a dis saying this in a positive way, in a disruptive way. Are you, I mean, if you're not a congregation, are you a, community and and if so what what are what, you what kind of community i think because we're really those? we're really interested in questions of of community and how that can look how that can look different okay so i i want to kind of i want to um kind of respond to your question in a couple of ways it so was an unfair all, compact um, question i or compound question i must i admit but no that's great i mean um because in some ways, we don't actually have vocabulary for what we're, we're, we're um, for the direction that we're going. And so one of the things that we kind of established from the get-go was that we would not be an organization characterized by membership. There would be no like dues. People would not become members of Judaism Your Way. Now, that doesn't stop many people from saying that they're members of Judaism Your Way because they make donations to us or because they participate to us or because we have become their Jewish home. But um, one of the reasons for that is that, and as we were thinking of all of the reasons, at least as many as we could think of, for Jews to, to not want to affiliate. And one of the reasons that we've discovered is that you know, for all sorts of historical and sociological reasons, some of which have to do with anti-Semitism, many Jews kind of developed an allergy to belonging and kind of identified or kind of connected their Judaism to a feeling of not belonging. And so if someone, you know, approaches an organized a, a congregation, it's possible that some people might have some ambivalence about about needing to join or become a member of a, of a congregation, or at the very beginning, their first interaction with this organization is going to be from a place of not belonging. And so that will kind of stimulate, that will um, kind of push that not belonging button for them, and that won't necessarily feel good. So we decided to take that, you know, that barrier, that perhaps psychological barrier to remove that. And so to make it as kind of barrier free as possible for someone to show up 
without feeling whether they belonged or not. So that's a way in which we're not like a congregation. We don't, we don't have memberships. We don't have dues. The other thing about, about congregations, and this is based on both my experience as a member of congregations and as and having been um, a pulpit rabbi, is that congregations tend over time to become relatively conservative institutions. They're, they develop traditions. These are the ways that we do things. And the longer you've been a congregation, the harder it is to make you know, significant changes in the way you do things. So our structure is such that we are more free to try new things, to experiment. So every year, our, our machzor changes by 15 to 20%. Every year, wow. um, our Haggadah changes by, no, you know, it, it, from 20 to 50%, depending on the theme of the Seder that we offer. And so do people have their favorite things that they like to do? And of course, that we like to do, of course. But we've tried to set things up so we are freer to experiment, to find ways of of reaching niches in, in, um, in the Jewish population that we haven't figured it yet out how, how, how to reach. And that requires kind of a flexibility, a freedom to experiment and try new things. So that's another thing that makes us kind of different. But for a lot of people who belong to congregations and only come to High Holy Days, there's really no difference between them coming to only High Holy Days at, at a congregation to which they're affiliated and only coming to High Holy Days um, that we host as Judaism your way. In that sense, it could be exactly the same for their experience. I wonder, because a challenge that I think you would have in creating these communal settings, because I think about with synagogues, and you have a lot of this one-on-one interaction with people mm-hmm. to create a synagogue or to create a Judaism your way. But once you start getting people together, um, yes. you have you do run this risk of, you know, how do you create um, an environment that recognizes a bunch of individual paths to Judaism and not creating an environment that says this is the Judaism that we're doing for this. This is a, a Judaism my way just to get us through this communal yes. event. How do you balance that? Well, I think that's um, that's a great question. And I, I think it's a bigger question than just a Judaism your way question. I think that's a pro- that's kind of one of the core spiritual questions of our time. We live in a very much, I want it my way kind of time. And so, and we live in many ways in a very selfish culture. And so I think we're all struggling with how you balance meeting people where they are with helping people connect on a, on a, on a more global scale. I'm just going to cite a couple of pieces of, you know, again, what I like to call the Torah of inclusion. One is the fact that, that Jacob, near the end of his life, He's able, you know, for the first time, he's able to do something that um, Isaac was not able to do and Abraham was not able to do. He gathers all of his children and he blesses each one of them individually with their own blessing. Yet they all kind of continue as the connected people. There's another midrash that, um, that the rabbis offer about what it was like for the Israelites to cross the Red Sea, you know, at the conclusion of Passover, you know, as part of the culmination of the Exodus. And one of the stories they tell is that each tribe found their own way through the sea, that there wasn't just one path through the sea, but there were multiple paths through the sea. And of course, you know, there's the, you know, very famous midrash um, that 
when the Torah was revealed to the Israelites at Mount Sinai, that each individual Israelite heard the Torah through their own capacity, through their own gifts. So from the very beginning, we've had this tension between individuality and difference and uniqueness and being together as a community. So I just wanted to kind of reframe the question as kind of a perennial Jewish tension and not just as something that, that our organization and in its current iteration is raising for the first time. So there's, there's actually a, a couple of things that, that we work with. One is, and this is something that we began with and that I think we've become you know, more practiced at, and that is the art of welcoming. Again, based on the ancient Midrash of the open tent of Abraham and Sarah, the idea that they had openings in all four, you know, all four sides of their tent. So whatever direction someone was coming, a traveler was coming from, they knew that they, they were welcome. And so, so there's that sense of welcome. Whoever you are, wherever you are, um, regardless of whether you are Jewish or you're Jewish or, you're, or you're, um, you're, you're, your partner is Jewish or you're an ally or a friend of a Jew, regardless of who you are, regardless of whether you're religious or secular, you are welcome. There's a space in this open tent. So there's that sense of welcome. And there's inviting people to like hold that sense that this isn't just for you, but that the Torah of inclusion isn't just coming from the rabbis to um to the people, but rather it's kind of a commanding voice to all of us that we need to find those places where our level of comfort stops and somebody else, and and it's at that place where we have a choice about whether to kind of go back to our own sense of comfort or um, or to reach out and bring somebody else in to make room for someone else. And so that's part of the practice. And so we invite people to, to stretch in that direction as part of the practice of the Torah of inclusion. But the other thing is, like, how do we help people connect to each other? Once they've been welcomed, how do we help people? How do we make the experience stickier once, like, the service has ended? Um, or once the, the, the life cycle event has ended? How do we get people to feel permission and excitement about reaching out to each other and staying with each other? And so we haven't spent as much time doing that. And so one of the, one of the programs that we started this past year was, um, was we've introduced seasonal Shabbat services. And as a way to, you know, provide the funds to, um, you know, to rent, to rent the hall, to, um, you know, to hire the musicians, that kind of thing, to, to publicize it, we've been recruiting groups of individuals who are interested in having Shabbat services and people who are interested in connecting to other people. And we've recruited them uh, as cohorts of what we call Shabbat angels. And so they, um, they get together and um, we support them to, to celebrate Shabbat together. And we also find things for them to do to help support um, the functioning of the Shabbat service. So they help with the recruiting and they help with the welcoming and they help with the setup. And so they're both volunteering for us with each other. And they're also, you know, beginning to learn the skills and have the experiences of self, for example, celebrating Shabbat together. So we're beginning to start to form these Shabbat cohorts, these, these, these Chavarot. And you know, we're going to be finding other ways to do that as well. But this is, this is more of a work in progress. So your, your question is a, is, is, is a really insightful question, and it's pointing to one of the growing challenges um, that we're working with. I'm wondering what the organization's relationship has been like with 
the other synagogues, with the federation, with sort of the established Jewish community. I mean, my sense is that some of the criticisms that have been leveled at Chabad probably have been leveled at you too. That that you mm-hmm. um your organization, you know, doesn't ask for commitments. It lowers the barriers. Uh, financial barrier to the point that nobody has a stake. Um, you may, they may even say you siphon people off who would consider going to a, you know, but why pay $2,000 to be a member somewhere where you could have high holiday services for free. And I think you're offering B'nai Mitzvahs now, now too, if mm-hmm. I'm, if I'm correct. So, yes. so what's, what's that relationship been like? Have you, ha- you know, faced some of those criticisms? How have you answered them? So I'll answer that question as it pertains to my organization in just a second, but I I just want to just back up and just kind of broaden the scope of of the question. When I first started studying to be a rabbi, my first choice, my initial choice was to go to what was then called the University of Judaism in Los Angeles, which was then the West Coast affiliate of the Jewish Theological Seminary. At that point, I thought that the conservative movement was the right path for me. After a year there, I realized that that wasn't the right path for me and that I was deeply attracted to the Reconstructionist vision of Judaism. And so when I told my professors that this is what I wanted to do, they all tried to dissuade me, not to stay at, at, um, in the conservative movement, but they said to go what they felt was a legitimate liberal movement, which they said was the reform movement. And so I guess what I'm saying is that whenever there's a new kid on the block, that kid is always viewed with some sense of suspicion. Interesting. So at a we're glad point, you didn't listen to your professors. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm You're... glad I didn't listen to them either. Well, I listened to them because I remember everything right. they said, but I just felt I felt I felt sad that that's what they were saying. You know, whenever something new comes into the scene, it's going to be experienced as a disruptor. It's going to be experienced as a threat, and people are going to have to adjust to make room for that. And that's exactly what happened with us. Yes. Uh, we got all of those criticisms. And over time, and it took time, first of all, I made a, a personal commitment to be at every local board of rabbis meeting. And whenever the board of rabbis did a project that I participated in, so they could experience me personally as being part of the Jewish team. Secondly, one of the services that we provide for people is that when they look at us and see that we're not a congregation, and after having had an experience with us, want something more, like they want a building, they want a specific Jewish address, Um, they want a school in which their children can be raised, then we often, we've referred people to every congregation in in the seven county area. And at the same time, over the years, almost every rabbi in this community has referred people to us. So when an interfaith couple, for example, or a gay couple comes to them and they're not in a position to say yes about officiating their wedding, instead of simply saying no or go to a justice of the peace, they can now, they have a Jewish way of saying yes. They can make a Jewish referral. And so that feels better for most of them. And so over the years, and it's been 14 years, so this didn't happen overnight, but over the years, um, everyone's made their adjustments. And now the Jewish community in the in the seven county area is, is bigger and, and more inclusive. I think part of that sense of acceptance came when people started realizing how many people were actually coming to our High Holy Day services and that we actually weren't a fringe organization anymore and that we needed to be taken seriously. And so 
I think all of those things contributed to the fact that at least, you know, publicly, no one is disparaging our organization or seeing our organization as a disruptor, but seeing us as just another player in an, 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 in an evolving Jewish community, reaching out to an evolving um, Jewish population. And, you know, we're, we're very, we're very, we've worked hard to develop very collegial and collaborative relationships with the rest of the Jewish community. And my sense is that by and large, we're, we're considered with, with great respect now. I guess I'm wondering, do you think you've, you've um, developed practices or approaches that, that congregations might be able to emulate? Or is your vision so, so radically different that it's, it's inherently a, a different thing? Well, I guess it depends on the congregation. One of the questions we ask is, who is Judaism for? And I think every congregation either implicitly or explicitly asks and answers that question. And so we have asked that question and we've answered it in a maximally inclusive way. Judaism is potentially for everybody. Now, could, could any congregation emulate that? Yes. But I think that would be, you know, that would take some time for them to want to come to that and to deal with the costs and benefits of that decision. So another thing that we've learned over time is, so if you're offering a Jewish service and you know that so many, you know, a large percentage of the people in your community, you want them to feel like this is for them. But many of them aren't Jewish. They don't know Hebrew or many of them are Jewish and don't know Hebrew or felt really bad about never learning Hebrew. And so Hebrew is kind of one of those, those buttons that gets pushed that makes people feel negative. A lot of people have never developed um, kind of a theology that works for them and, you know, will say that they're cultural Jews, Jews and they're not like spiritual because they've never figured out a coherent spirituality for themselves. And so how do you like lead services? How do you offer prayer? How do you how do you invite people to participate in, in, in a Torah service, given that all these folks are part of your congregation? And, and, and the truth is that they're part of almost every congregation. And so we're very articulate and explicit about naming those people and, and explicitly inviting them and figuring out ways to include them. And so um, I think any congregation could do that whether or not they want to do that, whether, you know, the, their cost-benefit analysis for doing that is worth it for them, that's really up to the congregation. But that's kind of a choice that we've made. One of the things that we do, and I actually learned this from a reform rabbi by the name of Janet Martyr, this was probably about 20, 25 years ago, on Yom Kippur, invited all of the non-Jewish spouses of congregants, of congregational families to come up and then she talked about, you know, there being allies, there being um, sources of support. Often they're the ones who are driving the kids to, to religious school and asked them to come up and she blessed them in front of the whole congregation. And when she did that, a lot of congregations said, we want to do that too. So one of the things that we made a decision to do, and I, we're not the only organization that does this, is that at the beginning of each High Holy Day service, after a couple of songs and a little bit of like kind of warm up, we open with a welcome in which we basically kind of articulate what our organization stands for, 
or recognition of who we understand to be in the congregation and explicitly welcoming people in all of their, or in many of their different identities. Now, we don't do every identity at every service. That would, that, that would become kind of trite and, um, um, and kind of automatic and, and, and people would tune that out. And so we need to do that creatively. But at every service, one of the things that we say is, we know that there are people here who are not Jewish, who have different faith backgrounds. And this is why it is, it is a blessing that you are here in this Jewish service. This is what it means. And so, so that's kind of like a state as kind of a faith statement of the Torah of inclusion. And of course, that's based on the fact that Moses was married to the daughter of a Midianite priest. It's based on the fact that a mixed multitude came out of Egypt with the Israelites. It's based on the fact that when Jacob blessed his two grandsons, Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and remember, Joseph also married um, Osnat, the daughter of uh, an Egyptian priest. And so these two, um, Ephraim and Manasseh, were born in Egypt, and they were the, the children of an intermarriage. And Jacob said to, you know, putting his hands on their heads, blessing them, kind of taking them as his own, saying, through you shall all Israel be blessed, saying, may God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. And that the last part of that statement is what, you know, many Jewish families on every Shabbat say when they're blessing their sons to this day, may God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. And so, the fact that Jacob said, through you may all Israel be blessed, we believe that that is like a commanding voice of the Torah of inclusion and that our challenge is to look at our intermarried families or our families, our people who have one foot in and one foot out for any reason, the way that Jacob did and say, through you, our people can be blessed. And so what does Judaism need to look like to make that true? And so that's kind of what we're reaching for. And I think any congregation can make that choice. We are out of time, but I want to thank you so much for, first of all, sharing your Torah, how rabbinic of you, (laughs) and also for talking about how you've worked, how you've worked in this organization to create this new hybrid community that allows people to approach Judaism in a way that's inclusive and inviting to them and getting them engaged in the Jewish community around them. That's been, this is absolutely fascinating. Yeah, no, I'm just still going over the, uh, the little Devar at the, at the end there, just making (laughs) me think about in different ways. So, um, thank you. This was, this was, uh, this was great. Um, Great way to connect. Thank you for sharing uh, some of your story and a little bit what you're what you're doing. And it, and it seems very much like a uh, an unfolding an unfolding story, a work in progress. And we we look forward to to hearing because it seems like everybody is is or hopefully searching uh, you know searching for answers. And and uh, we um, at Reconstructing Judaism definitely appreciate your your commitment to inclusion and doing that work sort of on the front line so and you're also if you're ever in denver make sure that you check out judaism your way see what's going on see if there's any services i'm sure rabbi brian field would love to hear from you and find out about your judaism as well yeah what's if anybody hears this what's the best way for uh for them to make initial contact with your organization well our, our we have a Somebody website will hear this, but... judaismyourway.org 
And if people want to, you know, learn more about what we're doing and try to see if what might be applicable for their their communities, um, we're delighted to um, to consult. We're delighted to to have a conversation, and we we're delighted to learn what you know what other folks are doing because you know we're at our best when we're continuing to learn. And so, you know, every year we learn something new. It's always the learning never stops. No, it never stops. Well, thank you so much. And we're looking forward to hopefully having you back on again and telling us more about what you're learning in this new, innovative type of Jewish community. It's been my pleasure to talk to both of you. Thank you. All right. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. shalom. Thank you so much, Rabbi Brian Field. You can find out more information about Judaism Your Way at judaismyourway.org. And if you happen to be in Denver, definitely check them out. See if there are any events that you can drop by or feel free to give Brian Field a call. And you can find out more information as well on our website at trendingjewish.fireside.fm follow us on facebook at facebook.com slash trendingjewish you can also subscribe to this podcast you can listen to it on google play itunes overcast castro most places where you can get podcasts Um, you can definitely download us and take a listen to other episodes and if you like what you're listening to you can definitely rate us it helps people find the show and definitely share it with your friends If you have any questions, comments, ideas, anything you would like us to explore on the show, feel free to go onto our website. Again, that's trendingjewish.fireside.fm and send us a message. We always appreciate it. And if you like the work that we're doing here at Reconstructing Judaism, you like our podcast and you like what you're listening to, you can definitely support our work by going to reconstructingjudaism.org slash support. Salud. Yalla bye.